Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today on the podcast, we are talking to Matt Bernstein, who spent six years on active duty, a little bit over six years on active duty, and is now a reservist with the Army. So Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. Well, we're glad to have you. So Matt, you've almost been in the reserves as long as you were on active duty. What is your story? What was your thoughts about coming into the Army and what went into your decision to to leave and what did you do in between? Yeah, sure. So my thoughts for coming into the Army were to do something different than all my law school classmates and kind of get out of Miami, where I grew up. So I did an internship my second year with the Army JAG Corps at Fort Stewart. I liked it, loved it, and got a job offer in my third early years. Then joined the Army straight out of law school. So I went straight from undergrad to law school to the Army. So you came on active duty back in 2012. The Army was a little busy then. Where were you stationed? What, what did you do there? After OBC and living the dream in Charlottesville, I was over at Fort Hood in summer of 2012 and was in the administrative law group at Three Corps, which is a three-star headquarters, doing you know internal investigations, ethics issues, those kinds of activities. And then in December of 2012, joined Three Corps pre-deployment training in Grafenbeer in Germany preparing for deployment to Afghanistan as the ISAF Joint Command Headquarters. So I was just a fill-in for somebody else that couldn't make the trip over to Germany. But then I got back and I, I pushed as hard as I could to get a slot on the deployment. I was eventually successful and deployed in April of 2013 to, to Kabul. So just after a year of coming on active duty, you were in Kabul. Yeah, no, I was. It was everyone at that time was really trying to get on deployments and they were kind of slowing down at that point, at least in the army. So I was fortunate to have that opportunity. Tough. Personally, uh, my wife and I got engaged about two weeks before I left and she was living in New York City. But I deployed to Afghanistan as part of the ISAP Joint Command and dual-hatted with three corps. So worked with our NATO allies at the Kabul airport at Kaya. Doing everything kind of under the sun as well in ad law, internal investigations, NATO law, trying to figure out how that worked, uh, looking at op orders and figuring out how the proper authorities were being used, mm-hmm. and then also working on intelligence matters and targeting packets. After deployment, where'd you go? Yeah, so I went back to, to Fort Hood, to Three Corps, tried to figure out where I was going to go. I think they were trying to put me in legal assistance, but an opportunity to become a brigade judge advocate in a trial council popped up with one of the signal brigades at Fort Hood. So I immediately came back, took a couple of weeks of leave and became a, a BJA and a, a trial counsel for a signal brigade at Fort Hood. And, you know, looking at LinkedIn, you you had a number of felony level trials. So you did your trial counsel, you did your SJA work. And then is that when you moved on to D.C. to do appellate work? It was, yes. Yeah. So at Fort Hood, I had 12 trials uh, as a first chair. And then the Army said, hey, where do you want to go next? And I said, a big city. And they said, all right, how about uh, Chicago? There's an army job up at the Naval Station Great Lakes 
But change of plans occurred, and they said you could go to D.C. So I was at the Defense Appellate Division out of Fort Belvoir, just a little bit south of the city. Spent three and a half years, ended my time on active duty at the Defense Appellate Division. Now, at what point during your six years did you make the determination that, hey, I'm going to go ahead and transition out of the active component into the reserve component and go do something else? It was some point in my time at, at DAD, was married, had a kid while we lived in D.C. at our first son. So I think that's the time that most people in the Army, or at least in the JAG course, kind of make that decision. You know, if you're going to stay in and move on and try to go for the 20, or that's kind of the, the sticking point around six years, seven years, determine if you're going to get out and move on with your life. It was a, a very tough decision to get out of the Army, but one that was right for, for my family. So I spent three years there at DAD and represented Bo Bergdahl while I was at DAD and transitioned over to the reserve component and stayed another three years at DAD as a reservist. And how did you start preparing yourself to obtain that first job post-military? It was really hard, to be honest. And I think as Faisal Actor told you on your podcast a couple of months ago, he's one of my OBC classmates. It is a long road to get out. And that is deciding where you want to live, you know, where you're going to focus your job efforts. And then what do you want to do? So it takes a while. I was probably starting the process two years before I actually got out, trying to figure out where do we want to go and what do we want to do as a family. It's a long road and it won't just turn on a dime. And as everybody knows, the military does not let you out the day you want to get out. It is a longer process to, to actually get out of the Army. Now, were you targeting to go back to Miami, Fort Lauderdale, or was that one of several areas? Take us through that mental process. Sure. It was none. We had no real desire at the time to come back to South Florida, where my wife and I are both from. I was applying to jobs in D.C. to work for the government at you know DOJ and any other government agency I could find. And at that time, in 2016, when I was looking to get out, there was plenty of jobs on USA Jobs that were posted. You know, it was harder getting the interview, but I had a couple interviews in the government. And then there's a change of administration. So in January of 2017, it went from tons of attorney jobs in the DC area to zero. So that really threw a wrench in my entire decision or plans to transition out of the Army. So the Army was very, very nice to me. And Colonel Mary Bradley was my chief at that at the time. And she let me, along with the, the Army's PPTO, extend my time at DAD beyond what I originally asked to resign at. So they allowed me to extend to try to help find a job. And it was a tough slug at that time. And when the government jobs were drying up in D.C., I just cast my net a little bit wider and looked to come back to South Florida and looked at a bunch of big law firm websites in Miami, saw ones that had job openings, especially in litigation, and applied. What were you selling that they liked? Was it your litigation experience? Was it your appellate experience? Was it the mixture of appellate, trial, general counsel type work? What do you think, in your opinion, was things that they that they liked about you and brought you in for the interview? So kind of, I think, a little bit of, of everything you just mentioned. I think it was definitely the litigation experience that was the hook. On my resume, my firm, Shikardi and Bagan, we have 18 offices across the U.S. and one in London, but we are a litigation firm. We try a lot of cases. So I think seeing my litigation experience at 
a relatively young age is more unique than other applicants they see. And one thing I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit, but anyone getting out of the JAG Corps, we are non-traditional lateral attorneys looking into private practice. So you need to find something that makes you different and unique to pick up that resume because people see JAG Corps and they don't really know what it is. And it's easier to just put the resume to the side and move on to the next one that they actually understand and can read. So how did you sell that in your resume? You know, I'm looking at your your LinkedIn and, and you know, felony level trials. That speaks, I think, across the board. But was there any particular way that you fashioned your resume to reel that fish in, if you will? Definitely. And I have to give credit to a friend of mine who's a legal recruiter who had another friend in the legal recruiting world that had a brother or someone that was a judge advocate and kind of knew the world that we lived in. And my resume originally that I was applying with was kind of your standard timeline of a resume, your job and duty title by year, right? Consecutive. But she had a different idea and make it more based on topic. And this is a recommendation I give everyone that asks me for advice on resume tips is, it's harder to translate your military time to civilian employers. I think we all know that. I think your podcast goes over that in great detail, which is phenomenal. But consider instead of putting it by trial counsel job, then defense counsel job, and those jobs that you're kind of used to based on your you know, ORB or your evaluations, do it based on skill set. Because employers can look at a skill set and say, okay, this is your trial experience. For me, your appellate experience, your general counsel experience. It makes it a lot more digestible by employers to understand what what they know is compared to what our resumes normally look like in the military. So I did it based on topic. And I had an interview where I applied with my old resume at a government job, brought in my new resume to the interview. And it was with lawyers and it was a, a government job. So it was with some agents. And the special agent in charge of the office said, I now understand what you did by looking at your new version of your resume because the other one was confusing. So for me, I think that's an important piece to group it by topic of experience. And that way, people that have defense attorney, defense counsel time and prosecutor time, you can lump all that together. So instead of having four trials as a prosecutor and 10 trials as a defense attorney, you now have a lot more. And yeah. it, same thing. It's the same skill set. So I think that for me was a big takeaway. Yeah. And, and Matt, to your point, I mean, I've done in both ways. I've been doing mine functionally, but I haven't had success. So I decided last time to change it up. And it's an interesting conversation you get in with people. Some will say, hey, listen, in part of it, too, is knowing your audience, but list your military commands because people are used to seeing that. And others say, look, on a civilian side, that doesn't mean anything. You could tell them that you're the, uh, you know, make up something from Game of Thrones or whatnot, and, and it would have the same effect. So I've heard that before, and it's it's good to hear that someone else has seen the uh, selling it functionally or by skill set to be able to bring their attention into that. But until I get a job, I can't tell you which will work. So Shook, Hardy, and Bacon, what do you guys litigate? I mean, obviously, you're not doing courts martial. You're doing something different. How is the transition going from a court-martial practice into everything that you're doing now? Sure. So we are a you know very large nationwide firm that does a little bit of everything. Uh, in my practice groups, 
I'll plug myself and my firm for a minute here. I work in the life sciences litigation world, representing tobacco, pharmaceutical, medical device companies in all sorts of litigation, and also uh, automotive manufacturers and product liability space for you know, negligence, strict liability, things like that. And then also 50% of my practice is in business litigation, trade secrets, breach of contracts, non-disclosure agreements, deceptive and unfair trade practices. So my skills, going back to your question a little bit earlier, is what do what do I think employers looked at that brought me in, or my employer specifically, is in the JAG Corps, we learn how to litigate. We learn the foundations of litigation. And that's the same regardless if you're in the civilian side or the, or the military. So obviously, we need to learn the civilian rules or the civil rules or so the rules of civil procedure and the substance of what we're doing. But the foundations of litigation are the same. Openings, closings, cross, directs, experts, fact witnesses. It's all the same. JAGs or judge advocates come in with that general backbone or foundation of litigation experience and can plug in and learn the specific skills that you need through the subject matter. So in my world, I've I've gone to a, a handful of trials. And in these cases, I'm helping with openings, closings, directs, crosses, and all that comes back down to my foundation from the Army. One of the things I've talked to others about making the transition to civilian law firms, but one of the things you touched upon, but I haven't really explored, is the the idea of a lateral transfer, that someone at your point in your career, six years, you're probably at the, maybe at the apex of marketability on the outside because one, you're, you have these skill sets that you've been in the courtroom at a young age. And second, you're at a young age where they can see a long runway ahead of you. How was the mashup coming in from that experience with maybe people that had been in the same of the same age or in that same time zone that maybe had been in the firm for five or six years and here you come in ready to litigate? I think the biggest thing is just being humble when you come in and knowing what you don't know. So as a non-traditional lateral like judge advocates are, it's knowing that you're not going to come in exactly with the year you graduated law school. I was six years out of law school. I wasn't coming in as a six-year associate. I knew that. And I didn't want to, in all honesty, because the more senior you are at a firm or an organization, your next promotion level is getting pretty close and you need to prove yourself. So I think for anyone that's looking to go into private practice, you need to go in knowing you're going to take a haircut on your year group at a firm or organization and be upfront about that in an interview or a cover letter. Hopefully that Whoever's reviewing it won't just immediately put it aside that this person is too senior for an associate role that we need. And I spoke with a bunch of friends of mine from growing up that were lawyers in private practice. And they're like, you don't want to be too senior coming in because you need to prove yourself and you need to learn the subject matter. So coming in from that that avenue of how you're going to start at a firm and then going back to your original question about the skill set or how do people view, I think it's a mutual relationship with the folks that I I came into my office with in Miami. I didn't know what I didn't know. And they knew that. And they all helped me learn the subject matter. And they also knew that I had a lot, I had a lot of trial experience relative for my age. So they would ask me some questions as we go through, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And I'd give them my perspective 
recognizing I'm still learning the subject matter underlying the issue. But understanding evidence was huge coming in. And then just general cross hearsay, things like that was a pretty cohesive relationship I had. But I think that the backbone of it, and maybe some of my colleagues will either agree or disagree, was just being humble and knowing that you don't know as much as the people around you because they've been in that world for many more years than you have. And at this point, so you've been with them for just about five and a half years and just recently made partner. Congratulations. Thank you. How many cases, I mean, not cases, but how many trials have you been in since you since you got there? Yeah, so I've been involved in, I would say, at least six trials as a trial team member, you know, helping the lead trial lawyers prepare the case and the staff and the other associates and other partners on the case, helping them with it. You know, my first month at my firm, I was thrown into a month-long trial away from home in a different city. And they had a trial going for and they needed help. So they're like, hey, Matt, do you want to do it? Got to say yes, right? You're you're the new person. And it was a fantastic experience. And I got to work with a lot of folks I probably wouldn't have worked with had I not gone to that trial just on the practice groups. And I've been to at least, I would say at least six trials, if not more, kind of off the top of my head. And you're balancing this with the reserve career as well. I am. And for all of my friends out there that are, uh, I think Jeremy Burkhart was one of my OBC classmates as well. And he was on working in a private practice with a billable hour requirement and having a reserve commitment and a family commitment is a lot to juggle. And it's finding the reserve jobs that'll help match and fit best with your time in private practice. So for me, I, I was a defense appellate attorney, which is a relatively remote job drilling. And now I'm a trial defense lawyer. So just flying the boards in, in administrative hearings. What do you wish you would have known coming out? Is there anything that you would have changed or you think would have assisted in your transition? I mean, you already took us through prepared for flexibility and prepared for change. You had a plan, which was government work and then a change over in administration. And hey, let's let's freeze all hiring while we look because we have too many employees. I know that's the mindset that came in and scrambling was. But was there anything that you would have changed in your approach to going to the civilian sector? I think I touched on at the beginning is just planning, right? It's a it's a long road ahead to get there. And I know other folks have spoken about it on your podcast, but it's not the click of a button and you get a job, no matter what kind of job you're looking for, if it's government, if it's in-house or if it's private practice. You know, I applied to a lot of government jobs, and I remember even a year after I started at my firm, I got an email from a government agency saying, hey, do you want to come interview for a job? And wow, that was a year ago. So just because you have six months before your out date, you need to plan well in advance because some of these government agencies, at least, it's a long interview process. And then after the process is over, it's a long onboarding process. If you go work at DOJ or some of these other agencies, you have to go through an entire new background screening process, is my understanding. And that just takes a long time. And a lot of agencies have a long onboarding. So it's planning ahead and it's it's finding mentors that are out of the military that can try to help guide you or at least give you tips and tricks of the job search, what to look for, who to talk to, and how to civilianize your resume to make it digestible to anyone else. And I'll, I'll plug some great organizations, Veterans Legal Career Fair, 
which Shook, my firm, is a sponsor of, and I've gone for the last three or four years. There's Jobs for Jags, which is another great organization. I do resume reviews for them. I wasn't able to speak this year because I was in a trial in Miami. And then there's also the American Corporate Partnership, ACP. This was a program I found out during my out-processing, which was incredible. It's a nonprofit that assists folks transitioning out of the military. And this, they line you up with a mentor. So I said, hey, I'm a lawyer looking to get out. And okay, how about this person as your mentor? The person was a senior in-house attorney at a Fortune you know, 50 company, was a prior Army JAG and a FLUP, a funded legal education program attorney. He was a West Pointer. And he worked in private practice and then he worked in-house. And he was a phenomenal mentor to me, just helping me understand this resume is good or bad. This job is good or bad for you. Here's potential prospects of this job in the future. And just giving me that real advice by knowing the landscape out there of take this job, don't take that job. Negotiate it for a higher salary or don't negotiate. And when I came down, I had two different job offers I was looking at. He really helped guide me in the right way and gave me the pros and cons of both. That had I just thought of it on my own, my pros and cons list probably would have been much different. But having my mentor bring real world experience was tremendous in my understanding of what to do. So that is another, the American Corporate Partnership Program is great. It's a year long mentorship program. I highly recommend it to anybody that's transitioning out of the military. I think you said you were looking at in-house work as well. So no, I wasn't. I, I didn't really know much about that world in all okay. honesty. I know more about it now because I work with in-house lawyers every day. But he was just an in-house lawyer that was helping me transition. So on that last point that you work with a lot of in-house counsel, from your perspective, from what you see as outside litigation counsel, in your opinion, do JAGs have the ability to readily contribute, albeit being humble going in, to contribute to corporations and companies like that? Or is it a much harder slog for them to break into the in-house business? You mean transitioning straight into in-house roles? Yeah. No, and I think there's a lot of folks that have done it. And I think you've had some of them on your podcast as well. In the Army, at least, and in probably all the different JAG corps across, across the military, we're at pretty young ages, we're advising senior executives, if that's at the brigade level for the Army or, or higher, even at the company commander level, you're advising managers of organizations of people that run into everyday problems. So by getting that experience while you're younger in your career, you're starting to navigate how to deal with different personalities, with different issues, and prioritize what's the biggest issue of today that I need to deal with, and then how to prioritize how things need to get done in your day. So I think you definitely have that ability because in-house, you're not only working with your internal legal department or your outside lawyers like me, you're also dealing with your internal company business units that need advice and counseling. And in the JAG Corps, you, you do that day in and day out. If you're in an administrative law shop at a, at a unit, you're providing counseling on investigations, counseling on ethics, advising on X, Y, or Z. And you can definitely be a force multiplier at an in-house job. But it'll just take you a little bit of time to understand the business unit that you're working with to then be able to give that advice. But you have that foundation 
So, Matt, you working harder now, or uh, when you then when you're in the army, or were you working harder in the army than you are now? I know there's going to be members of your firm that are probably going to hear this, so we maybe it's a softball question, but uh... it's a good question and a tough one. In private practice, no matter what firm you're at, you have bill hours, so you have an easy metric to see, you know, how much you're working, plus all the non-billable time that doesn't get accounted for appropriately in your billable time. And for me, it's depends on my army job. You know, when I was a trial counsel and a, and a brigade judge advocate, you know, dual hatted, I was working a lot, trying cases, advising commanders, providing advice, working very long hours, you know, six, seven days a week, depending on how it was going. And then I had my time at Defense Appellate Division, which was more of a nine to five, no real fires, no emergency, no Blackberry, right? That was probably the best day of my life in the army was giving my Blackberry over to my replacement. So... I think it differs depending on the job, but private practice for me, at least, is consistently busier because there is no other assignments where you take a knee or you have the ability to calm down. It's it, it's metrics, but they're but they're both different. Private practice and working on a bunch with a bunch of different clients on a bunch of different issues, so it's engaging and it's exciting. So it, it's a it's a toss up there on the pure work related aspects. Now, when you add in my law firm daily work, then my reserve component work on top of that. And then plus the family aspects of it. Definitely now just I'm, I'm older, different stage of life, much harder. But adding in my civilian practice with about 300 to 350 hours a year in my reserve duties, you know, I think right now it's definitely a lot, a lot more. And I, I just finished the Intermediate level education at the Command and General Staff College. So for all of my friends who have done that as well, congrats. It's a slog, but happy to have that school behind me. Now, we touched on it earlier because I, I touched on it, not you, to be fair. But you made partner, which obviously means you're producing, you're working hard, you got recognized. But how did that relate to back to your comment about taking a haircut with your, your year group, your class group? You know, how does that relate? to making partner, are, are you making partner later than most people because you didn't have the in-house time? And what does making partner require these days? Sure. So it's definitely firm dependent on where you're working. At Shook, it's you're eligible for partner after a certain amount of years. So for me, starting coming in more junior than my graduating class year, I was definitely behind the curve based on people that would have graduated the same year I did from law school that were at my firm from the day they graduated and passed the bar. But having that five years at my firm before I was eligible for partner was crucial for my development and my eventual promotion to partner. And I think that's an important thing for people getting out and trying to transition into private practice to consider. Because not only do you need to produce right your billable hours, that's part one, but part two is relationship building, reputation building at the firm, in working with people that then will trust your work product and your abilities then to elevate you up to partner. So there's a lot of other things that you just can't get without time in private practice. You can't just get that immediate, you should be a partner within a year if you don't really know the subject matter, if you don't know the rules of civil procedure, and you don't know anybody else at your firm because it's a vote by the senior people at your firm that will decide if you should be partner or not. So taking the haircut was a necessity for anyone 
And it's not anything to look down upon on you as a person. It's just the reality of the way it is. And it's the way to put yourself in the best position to make partner by coming in a little bit more junior than have those years to prove yourself. Another question on understanding the landscape, what a person thinks they want to to work in. So today is July 3rd. Tomorrow's the Independence Day. Traditionally in the military, this would probably have been a four-day weekend for you or for anyone like us on active duty. What is today like for Matt Bernstein? Ah, uh, this is going to be a good one for my employer. I'm working today, right? It's not as busy. There's not as many people working, I think, generally in the in the United States. So the emails are much slower. Today, for me, it's a time to catch up on some emails that I missed over the week, catch up on some work that's been just in my to-do box that I haven't done yet. But it's a little bit more of a catch-up day and not as busy of a day as maybe Wednesday will be. Well, Matt... I don't want to uh, to use up all of your time, but um, I want to make sure that I have given you enough of a platform to share your story. So if there's any other parting thoughts you'd like to give, here's your opportunity. I made some notes after listening to some of your other podcasts. I think the biggest thing Judge Advocates transitioning out to think about is go into an interview or go into a job application, assuming that nobody knows what you did in the military. Because for 90 plus percent of the people reviewing your resume or interviewing you, that's the truth. And that's a hard truth for us to kind of appreciate. At least this is my view of it. Because people know what JAGs are, right? Or some do. Either they saw the TV show and think we, we fly fighter planes off aircraft carriers. But they don't truly understand the military. Maybe they have the basics. They remember, you know. Judge advocates coming on campus interview in law school. Maybe they know somebody that was a judge advocate, but they truly don't know what we did or what we do and the skills that we can bring. So I think that is just the baseline people need to think about. Now, if you're interviewing or you're applying to government jobs, maybe you have a little bit more folks there that understand what we do, but a majority of the time, nobody knows. And it's easier for them to look at the next resume than to look at yours that makes more sense and is in more in line with what they're used to seeing. So cover letters, I think, are very important to explain what we did in the military. You know, some people I interviewed with, even in the government, didn't know that we have jury trials, right? That's a big one. And that's reasonable, right? We're a different system. They don't understand it, which is 100% reasonable, but go in and sell. Yes, we have jury trials. I've tried jury trials, right? That's important. One. I've done voir dire. Those are important attributes that people just may not know. And if you go in with the assumption that they know, then you're already putting yourself backwards. And it's really a disservice to yourself because everyone out there and people, especially on this podcast, we're all advocating for judge advocates to be successful outside the military. That's highlighted by the fact of everyone that comes on this podcast from you know all different walks of life and, and all different practice areas. We're, I think everyone out there that's currently outside the military is always willing to help transitioning judge advocates as much as they can. And I think every I think other folks have said it. I've listened to some of them, but 
If you find someone that works in private practice or an in-house job or government agency that was a judge advocate or has some sort of military connection, reach out, cold email people. Hey, do you have time to just talk? It doesn't have to be as upfront and blunt as, do you have a job opening for me tomorrow? <laughs> right? That That's not what it is. It's building the relationships and just looking for some help. I get maybe once a month, an email from somebody I've never met that's looking to transition out of the military, wants to talk about civilian practice. And I always say, send me your resume. I'll give you my red line comments. Take what you want. Reject what you want. Doesn't impact me. And everyone that I know that's out of the army has the same mindset. They're willing to help you. And you can easily find on a law firm website, you could search usually like army, navy, whichever one you want, JAG, right? That's a good one. If you're looking at a government agency, you could probably find some folks in there from the military. And LinkedIn is a huge tool because you can find a second or third connection with someone. And then you just reach out, hey, hey, John, I see your friends with Sally. Can you can you link me up with, with him or her to try to help just understand the firm, agency, or in-house company culture, what they do. So when you go into an interview, you have a baseline knowledge of what you're doing and what the job potentially could be. So that's a long-winded way of saying, assume nobody knows what we do in the military, and then do your research and reach out to other folks. Another tip is, to me, your resume is your most important document, hands down. That is the one document people see, and that is the first document people will see. Have as many people as you can review it for you, and everybody will find something different they think you should fix. Take it, leave it, whatever you want, but that is your most important document. On that point, Matt, everybody that has landed successfully swears by the resume that they've put together because they have the job. And it's very easy to get whipsawed. And I, again, having been doing this while I was getting whipsawed last week, at the end of the day, you have to own it. You have to be comfortable with it. You have to make that final judgment of what goes in and what goes out. Nobody else can. Yeah, no, for sure. And But it, it's all about giving yourself the tools to figure out what you think is right and wrong or good or bad. Yeah. So the first thing I do is I always, I always print out a resume that I'm reviewing and look at it on paper. And there's errors in everyone's resume. In my resume too, I looked at it recently and I was like, oh man. But it's really important. And some people are more strict than others when they're reviewing them. And if some people see an error, they'll, th they'll throw it to the side and move on. Others won't, I won't. But at the Veterans Legal Career Fair, I did that with everybody that I interviewed. I gave them some feedback recommendations on how to revise some of the easy things like making sure it's all justified the margins all line up properly you have periods under some uh at the end of some bullets but not others make it consistent consistency is important so really focusing on your resume and sending it out to everybody anyone listening to this happy to send it to me i'm happy to give you a review and then if you reach out to someone and they don't respond give them two weeks and then do a follow-up. There's nothing wrong with following up. Either got lost in the inbox, they thought they responded, but they didn't. Don't be shy. 
But don't email them every day, but don't be shy. Another big piece just for the group is the veterans employee resource groups at firms and companies. Those are big, big areas to look at, especially if you're interviewing somewhere and if you're interested to see if they take veterans issues to heart. I'm currently the co-chair of Shook's Veterans Employee Resource Group. Faisal was the former co-chair of the one at Microsoft. So a lot of companies and firms have these ERGs. So that's a good starting point as well if you're looking to talk to somebody. And I think the big last piece, Tom, is help others out, right? It's not cutthroat for these jobs. The more you help people, everyone will be more successful and judge advocates will be better known throughout the legal practice and industry because we're doing greater things for everybody else. That's my shtick for you. It's a tough road transitioning out no matter where you want to go. And it just takes time. I think that's the biggest piece. And don't get dissuaded by it. It's it's a long road. And everyone that I know that's successful out of the military, it wasn't easy, but people make it. And I'll close with this. Everyone who has come onto this podcast, every former judge advocate has said the same thing. I have yet to hear a judge advocate or former judge advocate on this podcast say, don't contact me. Everyone has been very, very forward about, if you want to get in touch with me, reach out through LinkedIn or whatnot and happy to do it. So you join the long line of those willing to lend that hand to other folks that are coming behind you. And speaking on behalf of all of them, and personally, I say thank you. Of course, and I'll do my last shameless plug. If anyone needs any legal services, feel free to look me up on our website, and I'm happy to help as well. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Matt. All right, Tom. Have a good one. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production. 